What's up, guys? Hope everybody's doing well. Got a very, very good episode coming for you this time. We got, I want to talk about the hottest topics basically going on, on should be everybody's news feed right now. Obviously, one of the most iconic movies of all time, The Black Panther, came out this weekend. We got the gun, obviously we got gun reform, and that's a hot topic right now. We got a few other things, so I'm going to just get right to it. Drop the beat. Let's go. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Mind of Mike J podcast. I'm very excited to get right into this one. I have a very special guest today. I, I affectionately call him the most unhinged man on my timeline. Corey Miles is here. Appreciate you being here, brother. Yeah, man, absolutely. So I literally just came from uh, watching Black Panther. I was It was literally, very rarely do I feel like a movie lives up to everything that people say it is, but I thought it, I thought it was all the hype and then some. Yeah, same here, same here. I mean, it was, as far as, now, as far as, as far as its cultural impact on, on black folks, because I know we had been gassing it up since we found out about the cast and everything was going to talk about. Like, do you feel like culturally, like, what was the impact on the black community, or did you just see it as like another, another superhero movie? Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, and it's been prior movies that had um, black superheroes, but I think the cultural importance of Black Panther was that. It had a overrepresentation of black people, but the superheroes um, were there, I guess, engineered primarily to deal with the social and political ramifications of blackness. So Black Panther, I guess, opposed to other prior black um, superhero movies, really dealt with um, the way in which, I guess, colonialism and this global impact of white supremacy impacted black people in Africa and in the diaspora. And then essentially what Black Panther does is really offer us the way in which black people, we kind of disagree and have competing ideas of the way in which we should attack um, white supremacy, I guess, globally, where we see with, um, I guess, the two, I guess, with the antagonist in the movie where he kind of has his idea about using Africa's resources to kind of empower all black people and use his violence, similar to um, probably some of what Malcolm X wanted to do, to kind of liberate black people, and then we have this kind of more conservative view where maybe we can kind of stand back and only use our resources and power when needed. But yeah, but I think for me, at least just individually, personally, this idea of really using superpowers to really think through um the social political issues of blackness. That's why um, I think it's like really, really culturally important and really relevant today. I mean, given who we have as president. True, true. I mean, the kill. I mean, Killmonger. I I'm listening. I was listening to things he was saying, and like you said, his he was coming from a standpoint where, and I think these these are the best kind of villains. Are <laughs> they're not just crazy. Like their yeah. their purpose comes from a very real place and a very real issue like he felt abandoned he felt like 
you know, we're just, the Wakandans have this ability to essentially, you know, be way better than they are. And they have all these resources and all this technology and they're not helping other brown people across the world that are oppressed. Mm-hmm. And the, and, you know, T'Challa, the conflict with him was, you know, we got our own, let's take care of ours and let's not meddle in the affairs of Western civilization or really just the rest of the world in general. Yeah. He was kind of content to sit back because, what he didn't want was to open up a can of worms and let everybody know. And I kind of felt him on this side too. If the rest of the world knew Wakanda was safe because America and the rest of the Western world didn't know what, how much vibranium and how much resources they, they thought everything special about Wakanda they had already found. Uh And that's why they were safe. So I kind of felt him from that standpoint too, but with them just kind of sitting back and not helping, but it also comes back to, on the flip side, if you have with great power comes great responsibility kind of thing. Like you have a responsibility to to help others, white white or black. You know, share your resources, share your knowledge and you know, do what you can to make the world a better place, whether you can see the immediate benefits to you or not. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I th- I thought it was I thought it was all kinds of stuff, but uh, that was just Overall, yeah, I mean, just from an entertainment value, aside from all the cultural references, from an entertainment value standpoint, the visuals, mm-hmm. everything, no, that that movie delivered. I'd see it three more times if I could. <laughs> same here, same here. So, the, um, now the hottest topic probably going right now in anybody that's even halfway socially, politically conscious is gun reform. Mm-hmm. I've heard you now, and I mean, and I have my thoughts, which I'll share. But I'm, I'd like to hear yours first. Now, I've heard your your thoughts basically on where we're at now with these gun laws and this gun reform. Do you feel like we need massive reform, just a couple tweaks to it, or you feel like we're just good with how we are? Yeah. So, with, with gun reform, um, particularly in an American context, well, like in an international context, I mean, I think. We can really have a meaningful conversation about banning guns, but in America, since it's so tied up into the spirit and the core of America, I mean, I think sometimes making those type of arguments really don't get you anywhere. Um, Because I I would disagree with liberals and conservatives about um, their position on guns. Now, really, for me, I feel like liberals and conservatives don't fundamentally differ on guns, right? Uh-huh. Neither one of them advocates getting rid of guns. And um I guess it's this idea of um narcissism of individual difference. When like a group of people are really, really similar, then they have to find these little things to kind of differ on where conservatives typically just want to keep things relative similar to how they've been, I guess hence conserve the past. Uh-huh. And liberals um have this idea that the system, the structure, isn't really the issue, but maybe we should kind of tinker. Maybe some regulations here, some regulations there. Um, but for me personally, I would advocate more so the banning of guns altogether. Well, we've seen this in places like Australia. I'm not saying America could follow the same guidelines as Australia because I mean it's two different localities, mm-hmm. but we have seen a massive amount of decrease in gun-related violence when guns were banned. 
And I mean, I think it's about how, how do we see the future of our country? Because in America, we normalize death. So we can be like, oh, only this many people die. But just one person, that's somebody's mother, somebody's father, somebody's child. And I think in America, it's hard for us to have a meaningful conversation about what we should do in relation to guns because I don't think we value life. I think we value in a theoretical perspective. Like, yeah, everybody should have the right to life. But when it comes to making practical changes, practical reform, I don't think we care enough to do those things. Right. I, I, I understand I understand you a little bit there, and I'm going to play devil's advocate, not necessarily because it's 100% what I believe, but you mentioned you know that you kind of lean towards taking guns from people, and a lot of people would argue that that's you know, a Second Amendment violation and it would be unconstitutional. Um, so is there... So you're saying like the whole the United States Constitution needs reform or we need like a repeal? Because we've we've had several Supreme Court cases that have dealt with this issue and and the the results have been different. But the the court has generally ruled in the middle. There have been cases where we've said, you know, you should you can't carry an assault rifle on your hip down the street. But we're not going to tell you you can't purchase a a pistol and keep it in your drawer. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So. So what would be your response to someone that would say that you're being unconstitutional by saying we can we should take guns away from people? Yeah, so from a black-centric perspective, right, the fact that for me to be viewed as a human being, so an amendment to the Constitution lets me know the Constitution isn't necessarily here for everybody else, right? So okay. the Constitution in and of itself uphold humanity of all people black people's humanity personhood would have never have to been an amendment and and it's hard for me to privilege or value a constitution that was written and upheld by people who thought that who didn't see anything wrong with the genocide of indigenous Americans who didn't see anything wrong with not allowing women to vote who didn't see anything wrong with enslaving um, people of African descent so for me then it becomes do we care more about upholding a really violent past or you know, I guess essentially trying to keep America great or make America great again is that more important or do we really want to invest in making America better than it's ever been before and I think if that's the answer then maybe we have to try to do something new because how what's the constitution or what's the importance of America if it's at its core it's about weapons I envision America that's bigger than guns and America that's more loving where we, we don't need every aspect of our past right before it was a right to own black people right Right. that's what all four founders thought but I would say they were wrong right a couple of people might disagree most with it but I would say they were wrong on that and when you love something, as I love America, I think you, you're willing to challenge it and try to make it better, regardless how it was in the past. Absolutely. We should absolutely do that because, and, and, and when, you're, when you're a minority in this country, it is kind of hard for you to, um, what's, the, what's the old saying? It's not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Yeah. You kind of look at things like that and you go, well, you know, obviously, our everything that's written in the Constitution can't be perfect because, you know, like I said, like you said, when the Constitution was first written, 
it was perfectly legal to have black people be slaves or be considered, you know, 60% of a human being. Um, so I guess, so say we have moved on, hypothetically speaking, say we've kind of moved past that. We, we understand we've had a violent history and we do take guns away from people. Um, another, again, another, another thing that is going to get thrown at you when you say that, what is, what stops the criminals from, what stops the criminals from, you know, doing dirt on us and, and we're not being able to protect ourselves? Yeah, and, and I think, um, see, that's going to be important because in America, the way in which we construct this idea of the criminal, where America locks up more people than any developed country, right? More mm-hmm. than the next 10 developed countries um, inmate population combined, right? So yeah. here we call it mass incarceration, where we have 25% of the world's prisoners, we won't have 5% of the world's population. And so, so that's going to be one thing, right? The way we've constructed this false idea of what it means to be a criminal in America, we typically think about black and brown folks. Um, so I, I guess it's this idea, this assumption that we need guns to protect ourselves from bad people. Um, so the, the most, I mean, I guess the most accurate thing for me to do is kind of compare it to other places where um, regular citizens just can't walk around with guns. So, I mean, in those places, gun violence really isn't an issue, right? Where we don't have cops patrolling with guns just because most citizens don't have guns, right? So, there's mm-hmm. no need to um, have every just ground officers just walking around with weapons. And mm-hmm. typically, people who carry guns, right, are more likely to be. Um, harm like in their household by by weapons. So it's not like we just got a bunch of people running around shooting people they don't know. Like I think about the Black Panthers, right? Mm-hmm. So the Black Panthers arm themselves up against um police officers, right? White supremacy. But most members of the Black Panther Party was killed by other members of the Black Panther Party, right? So we mm-hmm. just saw black people enacting violence towards themselves. Right, but not having a gun didn't protect Dr. King from the U.S. government when they killed them. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes about, uh, so for me, the solution then is restricting mm-hmm. most people from access to what, I mean, and this is like a process over decades, right? So I'm not saying just take every gun in one day but a slow process of disarming citizens. And it, it's like a lot of people say, it's bigger than um, just the guns in themselves. It's not a mental health issue, but it's bigger than guns, right? So, and then a big piece of it is about humanizing ourselves, right? So, creating this new American ideology where where we see everybody as full human beings, where we see everybody as and we as human, and we recognize that me being successful, my happiness is interconnected with your happiness. Where I disagree with Trump and Republicans. I don't think we should run America like a business. I mm-hmm. just don't, right? Businesses fail. I mean, why can't we run it more so like a family, right? Families work together and persevere. And I think until we can change the way we see each other, um, mm-hmm. so if we see each other as competition, it, it, it makes a lot of sense why we need weapons. But if we can move towards creating a new American ideology, one centered on love, mm-hmm. then I think eventually, and this is over decades, guns 
their relevance becomes less important. Okay, so you're so you're proposing. You can correct me if I'm misinterpreting what you're saying, but you're proposing um, a slow, systemic movement towards just a general appreciation and understanding uh, and value of life for your fellow citizen. And if we can get to that point as an American people, then there wouldn't be any need for guns at all. So Stokely Carmichael um, in critiquing, um, so he would critique me the same way he critiqued Dr. King's advocation for nonviolence, right? Where mm-hmm. he said Dr. King's proposal is that black people go around and be outstanding citizens, and that their oppressor would see their suffering, and America would change the way they treat people of color. And then Stokely mm-hmm. Carmichael said, but Martin Luther King's movement re- relied on a fallacious assumption, and that was that their oppressor had a conscience. And so America's never once demonstrated um, or has never existed in a time period for an extended time, not in a war. America's never existed and had an economic system that wasn't structured around violence. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so what I'm advocating is essentially anti-American. Um, but I think the future... Um, for our kids and our kids' kids really depends upon what we do now. So I would never see America without guns, right? Mm-hmm. But, I don't, but, I don't, but if we don't have these radical ideas and start there and progressing towards these radical ideas, I don't think we, we have a bright future. And I, I, I think that's a, I think that's a, that's a very, um, I think that's a very well thought out and it's, I think it's a, what's the word? It's, um, it's, it's well thought out. It's progressive and it definitely may, it definitely makes sense what you're, what you're saying. I'll be completely honest with you. I don't think most people are, are to be completely honest and be blunt about it. I don't think most people are intelligent or patient enough to really understand or grasp what you're trying to say. I mean, I deal with the short term. I look at what, what I, I look at what people are saying right this second and like, for example, I see a lot of people throwing out, well, it's a mental health issue. Let's just say it is, because I honestly don't know. I, I'm not a psychiatrist. May, maybe it is a mental health issue. OK, this current administration is doing nothing to address mental health. As a matter of fact, they're doing the exact opposite. Trump's most recent budget proposal is significantly slashing funding towards, you know, national institutions of mental health and things of that nature so it's almost like i don't i don't value the opinions of people that just throw stuff out there like that but they're not doing anything and as a matter of fact the the actions that at least as far as republicans are concerned the actions that you are taking are counterproductive to the cause that you're throwing out there is the problem because to me that makes no sense i mean at least i think I think the liberal standpoint of take all guns away from people. I think the I think the I think a lot of liberals are misinformed as it as it pertains to what you can do with an AR-15. Or, for example, it's not like full auto. I mean, AR-15 doesn't necessarily mean fully automatic Call of Duty style gun. And I think the a lot of liberals are misinformed in that sense, and they think that's what conservatives and NRA people are advocating for. But I do think there is at least 
I do see a lot of liberals at least trying to say we need to take some form of action, even if it's not the correct form. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. And I completely agree with you. Where, where my proposal, like you said, is, is more like ideological, kind of theoretical. And then the, the downsides what I proposed then is what about our kids' future for tomorrow, right? So mm-hmm. there does have to be, like exactly what you said, this, kind, this practical side of it. And, in, and that's the beauty about social justice and activism is that it's a larger picture and we have people working on multiple fronts and from the practical side where so one the whole mental health issue it, it is damaging in a lot of ways but just one way is that we we paint people with mental health diagnosis out to be these violent people mm-hmm. when people who are diagnosed with a mental health issue are some of the most susceptible people of violence in our society. Mm-hmm. So then it, it makes us miss their experience where we characterize having a mental health issue as one of being dangerous to society. When typically mm-hmm. mental health people are physically abused and, and it goes unnoticed. Mm-hmm. And then two, if we have a person who can be socially defined as black and they commit violence we just assume they're a criminal. Oh, man. Black people just naturally violate. If we have a person um, Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. Then we associate, we conceptualize that with terrorism, right? So we create these ideological constructs and we attach um, some type of societal meaning. And then mm-hmm. assigning mental health to white violence is just a rhetorical tool to humanize white people when they in their shortcomings. Where if we think about the genocide of indigenous American slavery, Jim Crow, it was legal to rape white women until 19, I mean, it was legal to rape black women until 1964, right? Mm-hmm. Where white people have been the most violent people in the history of America, but we've always created new types of rhetoric to explain their violence. And today that rhetoric is mental health. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's just a way in which to ease his white guilt and to maintain his idea that white people aren't inherently bad, even though they're the ones who advocate for weapons, when the only purpose of a weapon is to take life, whether that's human, animal, whatever. But yeah, but it, it does have to be these practical day-to-day steps that eventually may take us to a different type of America. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that's why the and that's why that phony baloney comparison to, well, you know, we have drunk driving, so we should take up my automobiles. What you just said is why that's a, that's, that's a dumbass thing to say, because cars are not designed fundamentally to kill people. They can be used that way, but guns' primary function is to take life. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's just always how it's been. So it's, and, and again, I'm not necessarily trying to say that I believe in. I'm not trying to say that I necessarily believe in taking guns away from people. I think I've considered buying a gun, so I'm not going to go and say that. But I believe we got to identify the problem. Either it's if it's mental health, then we need a whole lot of reform. If it's mental health, then we're not doing crap about it because, like I said, we're not doing anything to actually care for mental health people. It's more of an excuse than a solution. If we're if the problem is guns, then, you know, let's do something to limit access or just have a vetting process 
maybe make the vetting process a little bit stricter or or have it vary depending on uh, what kind of item. I mean, hell to have it. You can't even keep your license for you can't even keep your driver's license for so long before you got to renew it and reevaluate uh-huh. and things of that nature. You know, I mean, I feel like, and I'm not sure if they do that with gun licenses now or not, but, you know, I feel like there should be, there are, there are steps you have to take to do a, to do a lot of different things. You can privately buy guns in some places with really no kind of, um, with really no kind of look into your background or your mental health. There's no wait period. It's almost like, you know, buying, buying gum over the counter. Not anywhere. Again, this is this is privately, but it but it's legal to do that. The, the transaction itself would be legal. Um, but you know, I do think, and as far as like the racial aspect of it is concerned, I'm with you on that as well because I remember the black. I mean, the Black Panthers, for example. The Black Panthers are talked about by a lot of I would say at the very least misinformed, at the very worst I would say racist people that. You know, say the Black Panthers were used intimidation and violence uh, to to get their point across just because of the fact that they openly carried weapons. The same people that are, you know, that are pro-gun now and say that you should have the right to own weapons and do whatever you want. It's your constitutional right. But they turn around and use that against the Black Panthers when the Black Panthers were never out to kill anybody they weren't out to hurt anybody but they weren't going to let you come into their neighborhood and screw with them and they were willing to use force if necessary uh, yeah so yeah sorry go ahead oh, no, no, no. I'm listening. I'm listening. no i was just gonna say so it's it there's definitely an element of let's twist the narrative to whatever we want to make it not seem as bad or worse than it is depending on who's the perpetrator and we say who's the perpetrator? It seems like in a lot of instances the the uh, ethnicity or the race of the perpetrator. Yeah, and I mean I think that's expressed in these Tamir Rice's case, right? Um, Michael Brown's. I can name a bunch of black children, right? Then we think about black men and women who were killed by law enforcement, and then after. Oh, I thought they had a weapon, right? So it's his idea. On one hand, we want a society where everybody should own a weapon. But then when we're putting our police officers in really difficult situations where every time they make a traffic stop, this person might have a weapon. And then since we make it seem like black people are inherently violent, we see black people being disproportionately killed by more officers, right? So that's mm-hmm. being killed by black officers, white officers, whatever. And it's under this assumption that black people have guns. So we, we always see black and brown and poor people disproportionately killed more often, right, under this assumption that they're violent. And so if we are going to have a society with weapons, right, we're going to have to learn how to police a society that has people that are allowed to carry weapons without killing black children, without killing transgender women, right? And, mm-hmm. and so we, we, we want all these rights, but, but we don't want to change the structure so we can actually have people live a decent life with those rights. So then for me, um, so if we can't change the structure, if we can't, and for some people that may be regulation, right? For me, um, 
it's the type of person or personnel that can own weapons, right? If we don't want to change that structure mm-hmm. to fit the rights that people have, then maybe they shouldn't have those rights. And, and Americans love this whole thing. Well, I got rights. I got rights to do this. I got rights to do that. Like Americans say that mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. But but for me, it's telling, right? The things that we feel like should be a right, I, I should have the right to own a weapon, right? Mm-hmm. And and, and it, for me, that speaks to the spirit and the soul of that country, right? Mm-hmm. Where I can envision America as bigger than that being my number one right. Well, right. Well, but yeah, no, I'm 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 with you there. It's it's now now I've heard you go as far as to say that we should take guns away from white men in particular. Is, so where elaborate on that like where were you coming from because I feel like you say stuff especially like on social media that can be taken one way yeah. but you actually have a lot deeper meaning and it's just kind of hard to articulate that over, over a comment section yeah so um, so essentially if I say we should take away guns from white men essentially what I do then um, so I call it like this epistemological intervention where essentially challenging what we know or how we think about people where so if we think about mexican americans right where we we can blatantly say but have a candidate elected simply i'll say we should restrict access to this type of people right mm-hmm. based off this false idea that mexicans are hurting the environment they're rapists these things we can ban people from um, primarily muslim countries off this perceived fake notion of terrorism, right? Mm-hmm. So my society is basically teaching me I can restrict certain things to people based off um, perceived characteristics of that group. So I say, well, look, most police officers did last year, almost 80% was solely killed by white men. So 80% of American police officers killed by white men, right? Mm-hmm. Most white people are killed by white men, right? So white on white crime, right? Mm-hmm. Numerically is fundamentally greater than black on black crime. Mm-hmm. Where if we think about the massive amounts of violence that's been enacted in America. So most terrorist attacks in America are by white men. So mm-hmm. if my country is telling me that I should restrict access to certain people because of perceived um, danger and threat, then using that logic with white men, no white man should own a gun in America. If that's the type of logic my country uses, then if we put it on white men, it just makes sense not to allow them to own weapons. So you're saying, so you're basically saying demonize them the way that everyone else gets demonized. <laughs> yeah. So, so if our rhetoric and we we're legitimately making policy, we're electing people who solely restrict access because of perceived threats. Then, if, if we look at it statistically and things that actually happen then why don't white men have certain accesses restricted, right? So mm-hmm. so then it's not so much as I want that type of policy, but it's really to highlight the contradictions of a white supremacist society. Right. And 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 that makes it and like I said, that's what I'm that's what I'm talking about where you have a lot deeper meaning than what it sounds like on the surface when you just say we should take guns away from white men. And 
the thing, and I and I think like like as it pertains to Mexicans, for example, because you know the the other thing, the other thing I see a lot of folks throwing out there is, well, we can't we can't stop bad people from doing stuff, <laughs> but we need thirty billion dollars to build a wall. It's like we can't stop we can't stop anybody from doing anything bad. So who cares? Let's not make an attempt to stop anything. Let's not do any. Let's not put in any regulations. Let's just let's just hope everybody is safe and we'll just hope and pray when bad stuff happens and not do anything. And it's it, like you said, if we're going to apply that logic to guns. We got to apply that to immigration and a few other things, but it seems like when it comes to when it, it seems like when it comes to things of that, all of a sudden we have all these resources and action needs to be taken. And I'll go as far as to say, I saw, I mean, for example, I saw an ESPN the other day. Um, it was this one off. Uh, it was this one, uh, player. I can't remember the guy. Edwin Jackson, I think, was the guy's name. He was he was killed like run over by a car by a uh, by an illegal immigrant. There was all kinds of there was all kinds of chit chat on Facebook from from guys saying, "Well, that see see there goes those illegal immigrants again. This is why we got to ban them. This is why we got to do stuff." So no, I mean, long story short, I think there is. I think we just need to be consistent. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're gonna if we're gonna do if we're gonna do things a certain way. Now, if we're gonna do things a certain way, let's let's keep it the same for everybody. And it's very easy to to highlight hypocrisy, especially with this administration, as it pertains to as it pertains to how we treat different members of our society. Um. So. Move, basically moving on from basically moving on from that to the next topic uh, Laura, so Laura Ingram she made her shut up and dribble comments to LeBron and Kevin Durant and they turned around and called her, they turned around and called her a racist and it was all of those things now you, I'm assuming, have you actually in full seen the uh, seen the LeBron and Kevin Durant interview? Okay. Do you at least know what LeBron said to trigger that statement from that Laura made? Um, no, no. Could you explain it to me? Yeah, basically. So they're they're in the back of the car, and at one point, this is like a sixteen minute interview. It's on LeBron's um, own social network that he runs, uh-huh. uh, uninterrupted. I think is what it's called. Uh, but basically, what happened was at one, Carrie Champion was driving. Kevin Durant and LeBron like uber style and she was just throwing questions at him and at one point she brought up LeBron didn't do this she brought up well you know LeBron you know you've been politically outspoken you called Trump a bum before and basically just asking him well why what makes you say that and LeBron said that he doesn't feel like Trump cares about the people and now he he specifically said LeBron Trump doesn't give a fuck about the people like he said he said it very boldly but that was basically the extent of the political commentary that he gave so then the next day you see Laura Ingram on Fox saying LeBron's got no education and he doesn't graduate high he didn't graduate high school which is a straight up lie um and he has no right to speak and all of this other stuff so i guess um so i guess now that you know a little bit of the background behind that what is what is 
We're, I'm trying to figure out why we, why do you feel like people like Laura and folks who think like her and back her feel like they're able to tell people what they can and can't say just strictly based on their occupation or dare I say their race? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about black athletes and, and politics. Like this has always been a historical issue in America where if we think about why was it so much easier and we chose to do to integrate sports mm-hmm. before integrating schools, right? Where we've been able to make money on the, the backs of um, black athletes. Mm-hmm. And, and we've even, and then the way we socially construct the athletes where before, even a little bit today, we assume black people are just naturally more athletic. They're naturally faster, right? They can just naturally jump higher. Right. But um, I don't study biology, but I, I mean, I know a little bit. Right. But there's nothing in me as a black man that genetically predisposes me to being able to dunk a basketball. Right. So, so then there's this idea, but where did that come from, though, right? Mm-hmm. Um, why, why do we see black athletes um, so athletic? And it was easier for a society, an anti-black society to assume, well, black people did it, so they must be naturally good at it, opposed to saying he was dedicated to something. He worked hard. Mm-hmm. He bled and sweated for it. He was passionate about it. Those things didn't come into play, right? If you told any athlete, right, whether they successful or not, like, to get relatively good at anything, you have to continuously practice and be dedicated. And so we've always conceptualized and put athletes, particularly black athletes, into this box, right, where they're just athletic. That's their, their place. Mm-hmm. And, and anything outside of that then, then, then we, we don't need it, right? Because we chose to invest in you know, black athletes. We opened up white spaces for them, right? Mm-hmm. Relatively more than we would do in any other sector of society. So you should just be happy you're on this team making millions of dollars. And I think with Colin Kaepernick, right? Mm-hmm. Where um, I know he is the, the, the um, focus on the topic, but but somebody who I would say deserves to be in the NFL right now. But since he wouldn't shut up and throw, right, he, he loses his job. Mm-hmm. And and then so for me, it's about this dialectic. Well, on one hand, we're going to give black athletes some relative privilege in society, right? We'll, mm-hmm. we'll pay you a decent amount. But if you do offer anything that's, counter to the American core, then you can become disposable. Then we can um, essentially say what, whatever we want to say about you, right? Mm-hmm. To where the privileges and the way in which a white America worships black athletes, white America would never worship a black doctor that much. White America would never worship um, hey, a black man doing a podcast that much, right? But mm-hmm. the white America is going to value and invest in um, predominantly black people uh, uh, I guess uh, a sector of society where we see an overrepresentation of black people they better hold on to the American core and not stray away too much or there'll be some type of punishment so she can make uh, arguably racist statement um, and even outside of race just um, a dehumanizing statement right and there's not real ramifications because I mean Society gave her the permission to, right? It's it's not a crime to be racist in America, right? If it right. was illegal, then maybe it could be some type of structural punishment. But what she said is it isn't anti American, so we, we can kinda of let it let it we can brush it off. 
Right. I mean, I was... But the whole time she was speaking, one, like I said, I don't know why we keep throwing out that because an athlete, because of the nature of what someone does for a living, they, they're they not allowed to comment on, you know, anything. They're not allowed to comment on anything outside of what they do for a living. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, but, you know, if LeBron has a bad game, people that don't play basketball are allowed to say he can't ball and he sucks and this and he can never be Jordan. And they're allowed to do all of that, and nobody says anything. And also this, another thing I keep trying to figure out is why athletes have to carry this burden of being your entertainment. Like, why is it that, you know, because people, like, I hear this all the time. Well, we don't watch sports to, a sports are supposed to be a getaway. Says who? Mm-hmm. Like, you're saying because I'm an athlete, it's my job to just entertain you and not speak mm-hmm. my mind? You know what I mean? That that to me doesn't make any to me that's that's almost dehuman. And I don't know if people that say that realize that's what they're doing, but I feel like it's dehumanizing not just black athletes, but anybody that plays sports for a living is you say is them saying you are my entertainment. I'm not supposed to rather than, you know, because I mean, you could just not watch it. That's I feel like that would be a nice alternative, but people refuse to do that. So I'm. I'm trying to figure out why, where people are getting this from, and I think you kind of touched on it, but where people are getting this thing of, like I said, because of what you do, you have you have no right to speak about political, and really it's not even political issues that, it's not even political issues, it's political issues they don't agree with. Alejandro Villanueva, for example, you know, he he throws, he goes against what his team was trying to do, which was, we're going to stay in the locker room, we're not going to get involved in this national anthem thing, he goes and makes a political statement. Whether he intended that or not, that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And they praised him for it. People bought his jerseys, and they said he was this great, upstanding citizen and all this other stuff. So he's like Kurt Schilling, same thing. And I remember when Kurt Schilling got fired, he was, ESPN was in the wrong for firing him when Kurt Schilling would continuously bring his political views, but he was a conservative, so mm-hmm. he's allowed to say it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's similar to what you were saying. I mean, it, it, it's no... Well, I mean, in America, we always hold this bias, this bias. But, but we're all people, and the very nature of being a human is being subjective. And that's through your lived experiences, who you choose to hang out with, what music you listen to. So everything is political, right? And then I think um, so not doing something is political, right? So just going along with the normal structure is political. And, yeah, so <laughs> exactly what you just said. If an athlete chooses to use their political presence in a way that's, um, that isn't mainstream, then we see these backlashes and then that's when we come up with these narratives about why they are important and, and we do that with everybody in society right mm-hmm. wow why in america why can't people vote while in prison right other countries you can't mm-hmm. are you not a citizen anymore why can't you vote once you get out for a certain amount of time and then mm-hmm. after that period is up why is the fee so high that you'll probably never afford to vote ever right so mm-hmm. we tell certain people that your opinion just doesn't count, right? Well, we don't value a college professor's opinion 
over the janitor at a hospital, right? When, mm-hmm. But I think everybody has something important, right, to offer. And, and understanding our society, everybody sees it from a different vantage point. So everybody has at least one piece of that puzzle. But what we've done and has been, uh, i say, a conservative and liberal tool is to, if your piece of the puzzle doesn't help my political agenda, then, then we don't need it. So we can have millions and millions of people without the right to vote in America. We can tell an athlete to shut up and dribble. We don't really have to, we can assume all genders are just dumb and don't work hard, right? Mm-hmm. And and as long as we can do that and only uphold a select few opinions, typically people with high education, typically people with money, then we can have a society where the political power sways towards people with high education and a lot of money. And and, and then it doesn't matter if um, LeBron doesn't like Trump. He just needs to drill. He doesn't know anything. It doesn't matter if most people who can't vote because they have a felony typically vote Democrat, and then all our elections would be radically different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't matter, right, that most of these people locked up are poor and people of color. Hey, we, we don't got to do anything for y'all now because we create a society where your voice doesn't matter. So this idea of silence and voices has political and economic ramifications. And a lot of people engage in it without even knowing just because it's so normal. Right. And the other thing I don't like, and and media in general, I'm not trying to single out conservative media at all, but the media does a lot of this in general where they, they twist the narrative, right? So, so Kevin Durant comes back. I think it was, I can't remember if it was Durant or LeBron, but one of the two comes back and calls Laura Ingram a flat out racist or says that her, her saying shut up and dribble was a racist comment. She's now able to come back the next day. And I don't know if you saw this, but she basically explained it. She was trying to say that she's been telling people to shut up and do whatever for a long time. Then she brings on two. Then she brings on. I love when they do this. She brings on two black dudes to basically just agree with everything she said and be like, no, you're, I don't think what you said was racist at all. And the crazy thing is one of the dudes was a football player. So, like, you're going to say athletes can't speak on politics. And in order to prove that athletes shouldn't speak on, speak on politics, I'm going to bring on a football player to talk politics. Like, this makes no sense. And what I didn't like that they did is they basically spun it to where, well, you called me a racist. And I'm not a racist and you're out of line calling me a racist and nobody and everybody got caught up in the fact of, well, whether or not if we can prove that Laura Ingram's not a racist, then we can just we don't have to address anything else that she said or basically she's proven like she was correct. If we can prove she's not a racist, where no one's addressing the fact that, like I said, she was able to basically slander LeBron and say that he was uneducated and all this other stuff. And like I said, she said something that flat out wasn't true. LeBron was just giving his opinions. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he didn't he didn't talk about Trump's policies. He just said, I don't feel like Trump cares about the people as a whole. And, you know, she comes back with she comes back with, well, you tried to leave high school early or you didn't grad this is where you get from people that don't graduate. And that's just not that just wasn't true. Yeah. Like, you're allowed to, she was able to tell a straight-up lie, but now that's been kind of, no one's addressing that now because you turn around and call, call her a racist. And I understand the term racist gets thrown around a lot, 
in a lot of situations it is applicable and others it's not but but yeah that was that was the other thing i really just didn't like mm-hmm. in general was like they just were able to just put that spin on it and now no one's going to really address the fact that like i said she was just up there just saying stuff that wasn't even factually correct or or now she's trying to invite lebron on her show which i feel like is really just about boosting your ratings and trying to find a a common ground and I'm not saying don't talk to people. I think that is one of the problems that we deal with a lot is we don't talk to each other. We make a lot of we make a lot of assumptions. We don't sit down and have conversations with people or we pass judgment on folks that we really don't interact with on a day to day basis. It's easy to call every Trump everybody that voted for Trump a racist or everybody that voted for Trump is, you know, lived in you know, lives in I don't know, lives in a log cabin in Kentucky or something like that, has no teeth and and only and sleeps with their cousin. But we know that's not true. And and you know, but it's easy to do these things when you don't sit down and actually talk to people and try to gain perspective. I don't feel like anyone values that anymore. I don't feel like anyone values gaining new perspective. I don't feel like people like me, if I'm saying something that's just flat out wrong and I've been saying it for years and someone can show me where it's completely wrong what I'm saying, I'm open to it. I don't want to be going around saying something that's not correct or I don't want to go around talking nonsense. I, I want to gain that new perspective, but I just don't feel like as a whole, and this isn't particular to any particular political party, I just think American people as a whole, we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah, and I'm not even sure we, we you ever did it activity 
their bigger barrier to equality than the KKK. And what he was suggesting is that um, bad people just supposed to do bad shit mm-hmm. just in their job description. But we have more good people in America. But good people typically don't engage in good behavior as often as bad people. So when our when good people sit back and idly allow things to happen, mm-hmm. right, this is what calls um, a lot of the issues in society. And then Dr. King finished it by saying, white people assume they know everything about race. So when people of color try to sit down, and this is where you was talking about us not being able to have conversations, hear different opinions, where he said white Americans, well, liberal, conservative, um, whatever, assume they know a lot about race. I think everybody does. So so they never really fundamentally listen in any meaningful way to what people of color have to say. So mm-hmm. even though they may be really decent people, right, they, they perpetuate actions that uphold white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And racism is unintentional, right? A lot of people want to say it has to be intent, premeditated. That's just not how it happens. I don't know a lot of people, um, anybody really, who walks around intentionally trying to make the lives harder for somebody else. Because I think we all have a difficult life in, in this country, right? White, mm-hmm. black, whatever, whatever. But, but I think exactly what you're saying, that not engaging with other people. And then typically when we do engage with other people, um, what Frantz Fanon calls... Um, in this psychological term, cognitive dissonance, where typically when we hear things that counters what we believe, it doesn't change our opinion. It makes us invest more in what we believe because now we have to create these justifications for why we believe it. And, and then so it's about sitting down and having these new conversations, but more importantly, um, going to that conversation with this assumption that maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I am wrong. Maybe this person has something to offer to me. And I think that shut up and dribble thing when she said, oh, he didn't graduate high school. Well, in my mind, so what if he did? So you have to have a high school diploma to be able to offer some meaningful insight. And then I think until we get past that, I don't, I don't think we will ever get to a space where we could, what conversation would do what we hope it to do. No, I mean, and, and for some reason, especially when it comes to especially when it comes to race it it does seem like it does seem like when we're talking about issues as it pertains to race folks are a lot quicker to to try to dismiss it or act like it doesn't exist or things of that nature but for for other narratives right like women for example mm-hmm. women go through stuff all the time mm-hmm. that we like this whole me too movement if you, honestly, I don't. I don't feel like the me too, the Me Too movement shouldn't be exposing anything that we didn't already know was happening. Maybe the the depth and the extent of it, possibly. But for the most part, we knew there's some grimy dudes out there. But I feel like, like I said, women go through stuff every single day that them as women deal with, and us men can never fully understand it. You cannot fully under, women that are used to getting catcalled. Or, you know, they have guys make sexual advances on them at work, or they're put in situations to where they're uncomfortable, or, you know, they have to, um, you know, they got to worry about what they're wearing before they go out, mm-hmm. because they're worried some dude might run up on them. Us as men, we can, we will never fully understand. You have to be a woman to fully understand what that's like. Mm-hmm. 
and but but we recognize that as a general as a as a whole men pretty much as a whole recognize that absolutely and understand and you know really all you can do in that situation then once you do recognize it is just sit back and listen and know that you'll never truly understand it but you're going to recognize that it exists and it's there and it's real and i feel like when it comes to a lot of issues that us as black people going through even in 2018 i don't feel like people are as open you know i feel like there there is a there is something where people just say like like police brutality is is not real it's not something that's going on you know and it's for example i was doing um i was listening to a piece that I was just doing a piece that Sean King wrote called Soul Snatchers. And he was, it's actually, well, you know who Sean King is. But yeah, it's actually a really good piece that he wrote about, um, about Bronx, New York in particular. He was addressing the police misconduct. It wasn't so much a police brutality thing. It was, it was police. It was, it was the misconduct of an entire legal system in Bronx, New York. And he's got, court i mean and then and this thing isn't just an opinion piece he's got court summons he's got youtube clips of you know police officers i mean actual new york city police officers saying on the record they were forced to make arrest quotas and basically just you know incarcerate people and put them through the legal system that did absolutely nothing wrong uh, earlier and I believe it was 2016 and like I said you can find the documents of this the New York's Bronx New York they were hundreds of thousands of they had to pay basically had to the lawsuit it was basically a lawsuit ended up turns out city of New York had to pay out I think it was somewhere in, in the upwards of like 70 million in restitution for hundreds of thousands of basically these inflated or basically false arrests that they were making over, I'm not sure what period of time, but basically the reason I'm bringing all this up is because somebody from, you got folks in other parts of the country saying police brutality isn't real. Tell that to somebody that's from one of those neighborhoods. It's real to them everywhere you go, everything you deal with. And that's what I'm saying. Like we don't, we don't to be just because it's not going on where you are. I've I've never been a victim personally of police brutality, but that, but I'm not going to act like it doesn't exist, and I'm not going to act like I'm too good to have something happen to me. So, and 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 that's and that's all I'm saying is like it's it's very there's no reason to there's no reason to talk about to talk about these things as much as we do if it wasn't real. So, you know, and I, and I think it good, and I think it speaks to, and I hear you talk about this a lot, talking about privilege. I think it speaks to privilege to not have to deal with these issues. When people like us see Colin Kaepernick talking about police brutality, even if we don't a hundred percent agree with, you know, his protest methods or whatever it is, you kind of have to get on board with that because we know it does, it does, it disproportionately affects people that look like us more so than others. So it's a form of privilege to to not you know have to really deal with this, or it's or it's a form of privilege to be able to, to ignore these kind of things. Like I said, as like I said, as, as as it pertains to men and women, there's stuff that women go through. There's stuff that if you're 
uh, if you're born middle or upper class. There's privileges that you enjoy that someone that's lower class, you know, whether they're white, black, or whatever, there's other lower class people have to go through if they want to be productive members of society. There's hoops that they have to jump through that you don't have to. Yeah. Being upper and middle class, there's so that so that is a form of privilege. But it seems like when we talk about privilege as it pertains to race, all of a sudden that's going too far. Yeah, yeah, and and then so so people who are privileged has to have to deny the existence of the identities of people who aren't privileged because it might reveal something about their self. So if I have to deal with the fact that the income gap between men and women grows, um, the more women become educated, then me as a man might have to realize, damn, maybe I am doing pretty well. Not so because I work hard as hell to get all my degrees, but maybe because of these unseen privileges I have of experience life as a man. Where the recent poverty report, um, the global poverty report came out, and, and now America has the least amount of economic mobility out of any other developed country where we believe in this American dream, right? I believe in it. This idea if you work hard, because I, it's difficult to live in America and not buy into if I work hard, my tomorrow's going to be a little bit better than today. But statistically, in America, more than like if you're born poor, you're just going to die poor. And typically people who are born to parents who have billions of dollars die in the upper class, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I can't with a good conscience say those poor people, those poor kids didn't work hard, so that's why they died poor. Or say those kids who have billion-dollar parents, man, they, damn, they really work hard throughout their life. But we created this idea of a meritocracy with this assumption that if you work hard, that's how you get success to master massive amounts of inequality we have. So if you're born in the middle class, um, typically born in the middle class, you might slide down a little bit um, just because of the way economic trends have been going. But then middle class and upper class people force to face that maybe I didn't really work as hard as I assumed I did. But maybe I had um, good schooling because of the neighborhood I could live in. I had two parents that can invest in me. I got to go to a college. Where if you think about it, most Americans don't go to college. Only 30 and 30% of, probably like 35 to 40% of Americans have a college degree. So most Americans never get a bachelor's degree. But we deny privilege. So, so we don't have to rethink who we are and what we have. And I guess in relation to race, right? White people think poor white people. Right, I ain't got privilege. I got a really difficult life, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where they they don't realize that we're not. A lot of people try to equate race with economics. When they assume um, racial privilege means economics, no, it's class privilege. Racial privilege deals with the way in which you get to move in society. That skin color, right, has some type of impact on your life. So, what poor white people? I ain't got privilege. I'm I'm living paycheck to paycheck, right, on mm-hmm. Section Eight. But poor white people are less likely to get beat by police than poor black people, right? Poor white people get locked up a lot, but not to the same degree as um, black people. And so, it's always this idea that if we 
recognize that we do gain certain benefits, right? And it makes us feel less than, or we aren't this person who essentially worked really hard to get what we got. And if that's the case, right, and then that's where it becomes clearly important. If poor people aren't poor because they're lazy, then we have to invest in government policies to help poor people because it wasn't their fault, right? Mm. And rich people aren't rich because they these geniuses and did everything. Maybe we should tax rich people more, but it's a slippery slope, so we have to kind of deny these privileges because it always goes back to the political and economic realm. And then people suffer because of it. Absolutely. I mean, you can't... And I don't think... What confuses me about having conversations with people about privilege is no one's trying to say that recognizing recognizing privileges, whether we're talking about race or class or gender or whatever, doesn't mean that we're trying to diminish your accomplishments. No. What we're saying is recognize that you might have had it a little bit easier than than someone else. If you're if you're in basketball, if you're six foot five and can, and can dunk. Okay, cool. You you know, you can still be considered athletic, but a guy that's 5'8 that can dunk, I'm going to say, well, dang, that dude had a little bit harder way to go. So don't act like it's the same thing. We're not, I mean, I grew up with two parents in my home. I grew up with two parents in my home, right? I had, my dad made, fortunately, you know, was successful enough to where my mom could choose not to work. And she didn't. But as long as me and my brothers were in grade school, my mom basically was a stay-at-home mom. If I was ever sick, if I was ever sick, I could call her. She'd be up at the school in ten minutes. You know, I had those things. If I needed a ride, she'd be there to to take me to practice. You know, whenever for any kind of sports that I wanted to play. So, if you're coming from a lower income, I mean, I played basketball when I was younger. I had teammates on my AU team. You know, we'd go out to eat. There's stuff in McDonald's burgers in their bag because they got no food at the crib. Uh-huh. I'm not going to sit here and act like my path to where I am now. If we end up at the same point in life, I'm not going to act like we had to put in the same kind of work to get there. Uh-huh. And like, and and I don't understand why it's so hard to to recognize those things other than you're trying to maintain the status quo. Yeah, which I think is where quite a few people are coming from and either just don't want to admit it or just don't, I guess, maybe just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, and, and hard, I think any successful person is going to have to work hard, right? Like, that, that just has to be part of the puzzle. But we've reduced it. The hard work is all that's needed. Where if we think about American history, right, where in 1940s, most white people around 68 to 69% live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And, and now, I don't believe that before 1940s, most white people just didn't work hard. I just, I can't say white people didn't historically work hard. But by 1960, we saw white poverty drop to around 23%, right? And we had a big middle class around the 60s. And so historically, it's kind of inaccurate to say white people just started working hard in the 40s and developed a middle class. But what we did in the 40s was we created federal, and Dr. King talks about this, federal government programs like the GI Bill, where if you serve your country, if you work hard, 
we'll allow you to get an education. We had the federal housing that just subsidized homes in suburbs for white people, where essentially um, U.S. government would pay, essentially pay them mortgages. Mm-hmm. Um, since this was before the 1964 Civil Rights Act, it was legal to discriminate against any person of color from government funding. So all these resources primarily went to um, white veterans and um white families but what we saw then was that we started rewarding white people for working hard and then white people started living a decent life and doing a lot better Mm -hmm. but um after the passing of the 64 civil rights act we 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 seen a, a a switch where then we started disinvesting in federal programs where now we hear the same rhetoric today where um we, we don't need the federal government and everything. Um, states should control things. We don't need to be investing in welfare. Let's send people on food stamps, a box of canned food. Where, um, so now those very same people who got to where they are simply through government funding um, and hard work will look people of color in their face today and say, no, poor, um, and even poor white people and tell them that you just don't work hard. You didn't work hard. But, but historically, that's not been true of anyone. Like, I worked at Walmart uh, for three months. Hardest job I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Like, I work hard every day. I, I mean, I teach now. And teaching is fundamentally easy. I work hard. But the structure of Walmart, right, the ec- economic system, isn't structured to reward hard work at Walmart, right? All the employees, regardless how hard they work, just don't have a decent living. And, and I think... Um, and we do this then, so now I always got to take it back to some societal ramifications. So, so we've completely disinvested in any type of welfare state where we've seen our um, the poverty and the gap between the wealthiest and the poorest um, just drastically increase, where we have 400 billionaires in America, but more than 45 million people live in poverty. Mm. And, and and, and that's but the beauty of the system is we create these ideas about merit and working hard and um and we got a bunch of people in the middle class so it doesn't feel like America's that bad cause I even bite I feel like shit my life is gonna be better in the future but statistically right, that, that's just not how America looks so we create these ideas about working hard we create these ideas about American dreams not because we really believe them but because if we can get people at the bottom to believe in it, then we don't see a bunch of people revolt, right? We don't see another Haitian revolution, or we don't see Bacon's Rebellion, where poor mm-hmm. white people who couldn't get jobs during slavery because black slaves had all the jobs partnered with black people and planned to overthrow their slave owners. So then we can move towards a society where everybody can work, right? Mm-hmm. No, we don't see those things anymore because we created these rationalizations about why you are where you are. Right, and that's what I feel like is very backwards about 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 Trump's fan base, about Trump's fan base, about his, <laughs> that's what it feels like, but that's what I feel like is very backwards about his base in particular is we're at this point now where people who are broke are going at other broke people. Just over who they voted for and acting like they're enemies. Where, to be honest with you, the way America, America, more so than being liberal and conservative or anything else, I feel like capitalism drives America. The more money you have, the more 
you can make stuff happen for you in this country. I feel like that's how it is. So the so the people that you're going to have the most in common with are the folks that are at your level economically. Yep. And that's the flaw with the with the two party system, and no one in particular, I would say, is personally responsible. But we spend so much time going at each other, and like as long as we're doing what we're doing now, we'll if things will never things will never improve. We'll continue to have Democrat elites and conservative elites or Republican elites, you know, continue to sell us on these great issues and. When in reality, you know, they do their four, their eight years, and then things are just as bad as they were when they got in. You, you have to, I think we, ideally, we would abandon the Democratic and Republican thing as constructed and start really putting people in office that are going to make stuff better for us, that are actually going to make stuff better for us economically. So the middle class would be an interest group, and we would put people in place because they're middle class, not because, you know, they stand for veterans or, um, or I don't know, because of their stance on abortion or a lot of this like trivial stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, I really wish we would, I really wish we would just kind of wake up and understand as far as how, how it's set up now and the way that we, and the media plays a lot into this too. The media will continue to pit us against, to pit people that have way more in common than they do different. Let me continue to pit us against each other and act like, well, these liberals over here or these conservatives over here are doing what you doing, what they can. Like I abandoned, I abandoned, I I abandoned identifying as Democrat or Republican a long time ago because Mm -hmm. I grew, I mean, I grew up Republican because my, uh, my parents traditionally voted Republican because my dad was a business owner. He, you know, left his job at, around the '90s, owned his own business, and Republicans were the ones that were mainly going to pass legislation to allow him to keep doing what he was doing. So it made so it made sense. So I grew up in a lot of Republican ideals, and by the time I got around college, I just realized this stuff's stupid. Like we're not like being. I couldn't continue to identify as a Republican because I saw the all the other nonsense that came with identifying and you can be a moderate Republican, but I'd rather, I'd rather not. And this is a personal choice for me. I'd rather not identify. I feel like when you stop identifying with a particular party, you get away from the tendency to back up whatever your party is doing simply because you're red or blue. And you can look at stuff objectively and you can look at stuff from the outside and say, well, no, that doesn't really make sense. If this makes sense, or we should do this, or we should do that, and and I mean that's and I feel like more. And not saying my method is right, but I feel like you know it's. I feel like as long as you identify as Democrat or Republican, mm-hmm. to me, I feel like you you for the most part lack the ability to think objectively, and you subscribe to hypocrisy at some level. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, uh, um, I completely. Um, I think the exact same way you do, where talking to people, <clears throat> um, a lot of people say, well, yeah, I completely agree with everything Republicans do 100%. And I was like, I- I've never, outside of American politics, seen people 100% support 
all the ideologies attached to some group, right? There's no group, right, that I think I could 100% agree with. But we've seen that polarization with American politics. And then for me, um, well, exactly like you were saying, so we'll sit here and debate, oh, we need to regulate guns this little, like this. And then Republicans line, well, we don't need to do anything. And then doing this nonsense conversation, kids are dying, right? Or oh, we should invest $20 million in food stamps, not $15 million, right? And over these little little differences, right, nothing's fundamentally changing. Where what I always tell everybody, why I don't identify as liberal, conservative, whatever, it's because I feel like they both agree and buy into the same system. They simply differ on what identity should control that system. And then for me, um, I guess similar to the ideology of um, those who was in um, the Black Power movement, mm-hmm. where um, where politics in and of itself um, was organized around oppression and that certain positions mandate certain types of action. Like Obama, right? I would say Obama really didn't do anything fundamentally different than the people prior to him because of that position entails a certain, it entails and limits certain types of actions. And politics for me then becomes about negotiating small things. Mm-hmm. I, I don't need a whole political office for things to change, right? So we can think about slavery didn't end because of Abraham Lincoln. Right, Abraham Lincoln had no intentions of ending slavery. Slavery ended when slaves left the South and started fighting with the Northern Army and kind of changed the tides. And then, so Lincoln said, well, if you fight the Army, we'll just give you freedom. And then we didn't give so many black people freedom where slavery just didn't make sense anymore. We didn't one day um, wake up and say, man, maybe women should have the right to vote. You know, women were engaged in that suffrage movement for years, right, for decades. And, and they pushed whoever was in office at that time to to make those type of decisions in their favor. And I think um, particularly with black people after the 60s, 68 Voting Rights Act, where we see black people dying for the right to vote. Um, but the downside was we began investing in a Democratic Party where essentially Democrats got the black vote and they don't really have to do anything fundamentally different. Like cause most black people just vote Democrat just because just we just buy into that ideology. But in that time frame, we, we forgot about the rest of democracy, right? Where everybody has some form of power and we've relinquished our power to a political party. And, um, and I agree with the, your strategy more so not voting and organizing around parties but picking a candidate who's gonna fight for at least like five issues and those issues are your platform and so we tell you those five issues and we pick the person we want and then the community kind of pushes and forces them to be on the ballot um H. Rod Brown said when black people got the right to vote what better way to enslave a man than give him the right and call him free give him the right to vote and call him free but never give them a, a real choice to choose who's on their ballot. So the system structured to only allow people to make it on the ballot who can uphold the previous system, where until we change how people get on that ballot, then we, we 
can never get somebody there who can do something meaningful with that position. Like we only have people who are gonna bicker about at what point does um, a life become a life? Mm-hmm. Where we have women, right, who who essentially um, are losing health benefits in this midst of arguing about abortion when women's rights is that's probably like point two percent of it of what they're trying to defund. Right. And that, and we and we continue to allow that. And yeah, it's like you said, people are and I remember my dad told me this and he was told by, you know, somebody when he was little, and I feel like it's held true for decades. As a general rule, people are stupid as it pertains to politics, people are stupid and they want to be told what to do. And that's putting it bluntly, but that's kind of what you that's kind of what we're dealing with is we're putting and I'll and I'll and a Barack Obama I feel like was a perfect example. A lot of black folks in particular, you know, put Barack Obama in there, and I thought it was good that we got him in office. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, I don't feel like we did enough to hold him accountable after the fact. Once he gets in office, we just figured it was all good. He's going to do all this stuff, and everything's going to work itself out. And we made jokes about you know we would just be able to walk up to white people and say whatever we wanted to. And we're not taking this crap no more. And, and like, you make jokes, but, like, really, that's, to an extent, that's how a lot of people felt, was Barack Obama's in office, everything's fixed. And you look eight years later, and a lot of people are still living like how they were living when Barack got up. Now, I'm not saying, is Barack Obama directly responsible for that? No. I mean, he had to fight Republicans for eight years. But what I'm saying is, I think people... If the guy that you have is, we got the guy that we wanted in office, and then we just stopped thinking yeah. for eight years, and we really didn't pay attention, and we didn't hold him accountable. By the time 2012 rolled around, I was open to having another, somebody else in office. I ended up voting for Barack Obama again, because I didn't think Mitt Romney should be able to just say he doesn't care about 50% of the country and still get in, but... I was open to it because I was kind of thinking, like, I'm not too crazy about what Barack Obama's... I think Barack Obama doesn't, has done some good stuff, but, you know, I'd be open to some other ideas. Mm-hmm. And and you, you're seeing it with Trump now. You got people that have even said... People are saying... I've seen folks say openly that they knew... That they either, one, knew Trump was going to screw everything up when they voted for him, or two, even if he does, after the fact, it's cool, it's whatever, I support him. And even if, and to me, if we even have one person in America that thinks like that, that's a problem. But it's way more than one. So, um, but basically, to to wrap this up, what do you feel like? Because we've talked about a lot of the issues that we're having. Like, what are some, what are some short term solutions, or what, or even long term? I know you kind of talked briefly about changing the way that we think. You know, just looking at each other as we're all humans and all Americans. But, like, what are some things that you feel like we can do to really be the change or really expedite this process and see the change that we want to see? Yeah, so, so, so I guess it's like just population statistics. Um, where it's, we're making a huge, so, so I guess Karl Marx, where capitalism is going to create its own tools for its own destruction, right? Mm-hmm. So we're creating a bunch of poor people in this country. Well, we got a small amount of people that's doing really well. And um, America's about to be primarily more people of color than white. So white people are going to be minority in comparison to 
people of color. Mm-hmm. And so if we keep this trend of capitalism with economic stagnation, if we keep this trend where we keep disproportionately locking up people of color and um, discriminating in employment and other things like that, then we, we, we have a, we're going to have a situation on hand where it might have to be um, some form of physical revolt that's, that's going to happen. Um, and then where um, it, it seems like we're modern and we're past that, but, but I think we're creating that type of climate with this resurgence of protests is going on. So I'm not saying that poor people, people of color are going to start it, but um, I think tensions are, are coming to the surface that has already been there. But, but short-term practical things. Um, so one, we have to increase minimum wage, right? Mm-hmm. People want to, I mean, I'm not an economist, but people want to use this dumbass argument. If we increase minimum wage, standard living goes up. But, but, but standard living has increased greatly, and minimum wage hasn't. So mm-hmm. we can't keep having a person working 40 hours a week not being able to pay their light bill. So, um... Minimum wage is going to have to go up. Um, police reform, <clears throat> meaning we we can't keep militarizing the police force, right? So, so we we need to cut back and reorient the way we choose to police people, where it needs to move towards this community policing, where you police communities that you're from with people you know, you less likely to shoot somebody your next door neighbor than you are some black kid, right? So, so we need to have police officers who have, if they're not from that community, they should engage with that community outside of their job. Um, and I guess just another short-term implication is we're going to have to be real serious about sexual violence where um, in North Carolina where we, we don't want transgender individuals um, going in a certain bathroom because this idea of sexual assault while we got <laughs> a Republican president um, who admitted to sexual assault, right? So, so we don't really care about women getting sexually assaulted. We just want to restrict rights from transgender individuals. But, but if we don't really think deeply about the way in which we structure a society where we restrict the rights of women, right? So women don't essentially have the right to choose what they can and cannot do with their bodies. And and where sexual violence is is the norm, then, then we can't fully grow into in, in, in any meaningful way given women spend most time with children. So the way in which we treat women directly impacts the future of our nation because they're women are the ones who carry culture. They do most of the child rearing, which is um, an issue in and of itself. So yeah, so those are probably going to be three of my big recommendations. Um, increase minimum wage, we need to move to more of a community policing style, and we have to um, really think through the ways in which we organize uh, a patriarchal society against women. I'm, I'm with you in that. I think those are, I, I would like to think those are things that everybody can get behind. I know we have a lot of differences, and I mean, all day, we go all day back and forth on how we get there, but I think those are things as far as, you know, the end the end result, I, I would like to think that's stuff that everybody can get on board with, but other than that, man, that's all I have for you. Did you have anything else you wanted to throw out before, um, before we wrap no, up? Man, just, um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to 
opportunity to be home and have fun with the conversation. I mean, be, these nights. And I just want to say thank you. And um, I, I love what you're doing because uh, a lot of us just post online and that be it. But having people actually out there that, that are starting productive conversations, um, I admire it. Yeah, absolutely. That's that was that was my goal when I started was to really try to get conversations going and get messages because at, at the end of the day, you know, we we share memes and we share other people's posts and we put put up these one liners and I feel like you get you build this impression of people that that isn't actually them. And you and you forget like people that I had known for years, I start looking at them sideways like, man, I don't know about this dude anymore. And then when you actually turn around and it's been night and day, like when I turn around and actually have a conversation with people, it becomes like, oh, man, you actually remember shit. We are all human and we do actually all care and we all mean well. So, yeah, I I think it's important that we do that and we get this kind of stuff out there. And, you know, I give people like you and others that really have, that really think critically and have solutions for these kind of things, not just throwing out, not just pointing fingers. I think it's important to give folks like that a platform. So, like I said, it was a privilege having you on as well. So, um, definitely, man, I appreciate you being here. We'll have to do this again sometime soon. Cool, man. All right, bro. Well, you have a good rest of your night. Uh, You do the same, Mike. Take care, man. Yes, sir. God bless. All right, guys. Well, again, that was sorry that one ran a little bit long, but these are conversations and these are topics that I personally had a lot of. I refrain from talking too much about these kind of things, like we were just saying, you know, on on my social media accounts that if you guys have seen them, because I do think it is really hard to get out a complete your complete and full thoughts. And again, I'm just. I'm just one person that has, I have my views and my different ways and how I look at stuff. And I would like to think that this is something that we can continue to do is like I said, and I've said this plenty of times before, but I think it's important that we do physically talk in an age of technology it's become, we become less, I feel like we become dehumanized and we do less and less actual meaningful interaction. And I think you're seeing, you're seeing a divide in this country largely because of that. And again, it's just important whether, and again, you feel free to disagree, agree or disagree, or if you got a, a twist or anything like that, that's fine. But the important thing is that we have platforms. And again, that's one reason why I started doing this is to provide the kind of platform where we can have these kind of discussions. Because to be honest, in my opinion, there's just not a lot of it going on. But I appreciate everybody else listening. This concludes another episode of the Mind of Mike J podcast. New episodes every week. Again, I appreciate everybody that's been on. I will be back next week with some more stuff for you. But in the meantime, I am signing off. 